Hello, everyone. I'm Cadence Debuse. This is the Busy Body Podcast. And I'm here with my guest, Danielle Friedman, who is the author of Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World. She's a journalist and a writer and is based in New York City. And I'm super excited to have her on. I feel like I've scored a major celebrity. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thrilled to be here. (laughs) So I've been recommending this book to everybody, including people who aren't in the fitness world, just because... Um, it also just shows how much fitness has changed our whole culture, whether or not you ever go to the gym, um, mm-hmm. literally just that people wear, uh, athleisure, you know, that it's, that it's okay to wear yoga leggings and go to the grocery store. I didn't even realize how, how many areas, uh, had changed really so recently. Mm. Um, and when I originally, well, first let, let, I want to know kind of what prompted you to write this and what inspired you and what, what was that research process like a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. So the book began pretty organically. Um, it began in a fitness studio. Um, I should say it was born in a fitness studio. Um, I am a lifelong runner and I had never really done, um, any kind of boutique fitness until about six years ago. Um, I ventured into my first bar workout studio and I was sort of fascinated by the the bar subculture and just the whole the whole thing as a feminist journalist and a and a health journalist um I I couldn't take those hats off as I was doing bar and I initially I was sort of fascinated by what felt like some of the more sexual um movements in the class, like, like the pelvic tilt and the thrust. And I was, I was doing a lot of writing about sexuality at the time. And so I decided to explore, uh, whether bar could have a positive impact on women's, uh, sex lives, you know, sexual, uh, enjoyment. And while researching that story, I stumbled on what felt to me like, a, sort of a much richer, more complex story. And that was the the story of Lottie Burke, who invented the bar workout in the late 1950s. And sure enough, she was this like free love revolutionary in pre-sexual um, revolution London and very explicitly wanted the workout to help women connect with their bodies and their sexuality. And so... I became obsessed with Lottie's story um, and she became this really central figure in the swinging sixties and, and her studio, this sort of ratty little studio became a place to see and be seen um, in that era in, in the, in the 1960s, especially. And so I ended up writing about Lottie Burke and the origins of bar for New York magazines, the cut um, while I was working on that story, I, it had occurred to me, you know, I'd love to speak with whoever wrote the book on the history of women's fitness. And I was very surprised to discover that that book did not exist. Um, I wanted to contextualize, you know, what Lottie had created. And it was a pretty immediate, you know, like light bulb moment for me where um, I became not only obsessed with Lottie's story, but this larger narrative, which to me, um, not only after just a little more research did I discover that it was really rich with, you know, fascinating characters and pioneers. Um, but as you were alluding to, 
there was a really important story here that to me had just been completely overlooked by history, which is how women um, kind of harness movement and exercise and fitness as a tool for connecting with their bodies, for self-determination, for physical autonomy, um, because not that long ago in the 1950s, you know, where my book begins, um, it was really considered really subversive for women to sweat, to exercise vigorously and, and all of these, so much that we take for granted today. So that was basically the origin story. And um, I was really thrilled to discover that in so many of the um, like movement movements over the past 70 years, there there, there was this figure responsible, you know, not, it was, yeah. it was a team effort, but, um, but often um, a sort of mastermind who yeah. started it all. And, um, and so, yeah, it was just such really such a joy to research and get to tell this story. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. There really are these kind of maverick women, one mm -hmm. after the other, who are so interesting, so unique, and so determined, just really blazing trails mm -hmm. alone, you know? Yes. Uh, I mean, obviously, supported in, in various ways, but for so many of them, literally doing the first, being mm -hmm. the first person to, to think of something, or um, in some instances, join places where only men had been before. That really goes into my one of my bigger questions, which is that I really felt like this is such a feminist book in that it charts story after story of women gaining financial success, physical empowerment, um, all from these niche fitness industries that they create. And it almost feels like that's that's like a hidden narrative or really just because our we live in a culture that doesn't uh, uplift any female stories mm -hmm, <laughs> or, or leadership. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's totally overlooked. But I think the the thing that interested me as well was that all these um, niches, jazzercise, aerobics, um, they started as these places for women to be connecting to their bodies, empowering, community-oriented. Uh, mm -hmm. And then once they became mainstream, then they just turned into the regular old capitalist misogyny. You're too fat to join this aerobics mm -hmm. class. You're too fat to wear this Lycra, you know, mm -hmm. but originally mm -hmm. had been really open places and really um, uh, inclusive and inspiring places. And I, that was fascinating. It was just like story after story of like a woman starts this, this fad, basically everyone gets super excited it has a run that is very female centered. Then it gets bigger and then mm -hmm. it's like, it, mm -hmm. like it's done kind of it's mass mm -hmm. culture. It's gross. Mm -hmm. <laughs> People feel like mm -hmm. they can't take part in it anymore or they're pushed mm -hmm. out of it. Mm -hmm. And then the next kind of the next maverick woman kind of starts a new thing or something like that. Um, did you, did you, do you agree or is there? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And just, I I was really fascinated by the way in which fitness was this uh, sort of sneaky source of power for women, yeah. uh, particularly at times when women did not have a lot of social or political power. Um, and I think you're right, but I would say that um, in many cases, and and so much of this is just sort of it was the the like these women and these movements were the product of their times. Um, because women's strength has been so threatening for so long, um, they, even though the 
the women themselves were quite feminist, even if they didn't call themselves that, you know, and and believed fully in women's equality. Um, They, they would often sell whatever workout, you know, they were, they were um, championing as a way for women to become more conventionally attractive and to lose more desirable. And, you know, I think that particularly in like, the fifties and sixties, um, these women, they were also, you know, they were, they were entrepreneurs and I think they were savvy in, in recognizing that, um, you could only kind of push the limit so far. Like you could, if you're going to make the case, and I'm, I'm thinking particularly of Bonnie Pruden, who's one of the mm-hmm. godmothers of women's fitness. If you're going to make the case that women could do, you know, can and should do pushups and needed to build muscle, um, which had been historically so associated with men, you know, she, she, I don't know if there was another way, but she kind of recognized that selling it as a beauty tool is saying, well, no, no, no muscle, no curve, you know, this will help women um, hold on to their honeymoon figure. It was, was like a uh, successful business strategy. And so the, there was this kind of radical messaging that was, that was often almost, you know, masked a little bit by the packaging and the marketing, but it it had, you know, when you look at the the arc of the story and the arc of history, it did, it has led little by little to progress. Um, And yeah, my, you know, one of my goals was by exploring this history and how, we got to where we are today and kind of, you know, the hidden forces that have shaped both fitness and the way we think about our bodies, like the hidden patriarchal forces and capitalist forces, we can, we can start to untangle all of the mixed messaging and, and really harness the, the potential of movement and fitness for women's bodies and for our, our actual well-being and begin to separate it from um, the pursuit of, you know, a particular body ideal. Yeah, I mean, that's where I found this book really moving as someone who is in this industry. I I didn't realize how much I was fitting into a lineage, like mm, so much mm, like a puzzle piece that mm-hmm. I could really trace. Even just growing up and kind of being a, a teenager, uh, kind of in the early 90s, that, that I used to lift weights at a gym and didn't realize that that was actually still so new that women could be in a free weight room, for instance. Yeah. And that I just had access to that. And then me and my girlfriend would just lift weights together after school. And that, that was like our cool after school activity that we did together. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's someone I actually still know today. And we were just talking about that, that isn't that so interesting that we used to lift, lift weights together as our like hangout time, you know, instead of at the mall, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, I teach Pilates um, which has like a, a an adjacent history to the Lottie mm-hmm. Burke method in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. Um, and then obviously owning a boutique studio and storefronts um, and coming like, like just the possibility of doing that is because that already existed, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and my own growth through my own interest in, in fitness and in different um, I mean, I literally started in high school teaching 
um, fitness kickboxing because that was hmm. like a fad at that time. <laughs> um, like right on the heels of step aerobics and stuff. Like I definitely mm-hmm. did step aerobics, but it was like kind of it was on its down <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> as I was as I was becoming old enough to teach anything. Um, yeah, I I was amazed that there's such a clear line and where I am right now, and I feel like other studio owners is in that space where we're, we don't have to mask that message anymore of working out to feel connected to your body, to feel empowered, to help all areas of your life, not to lose weight, not to become more desirable to male gaze or whatever that Mm -hmm. we can just, that can just be the marketing. I don't Mm -hmm. have to hide Mm -hmm. that anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that feels like that's even changed. My studio is 12 years old, like in, in a decade, I think when I first opened, it was more just like, Pilates makes you strong. Come do this thing. And, uh, I also teach kettlebells and strength and conditioning. And, uh, that was mainly marketed as like, we all know lifting weights is good for you. Basically, you know, that Mm -hmm. was, it was like Mm -hmm. pretty general. Whereas now those offerings are like very feminist in my, Mm -hmm. in my, Mm -hmm. in my, in what I do and why I teach them and the reasons that people uh, want to take those with me. It's very much about connecting to your strength, feeling comfortable, just like engaging with heavy objects in space, things. Yes. Literally, I give a speech at the beginning of my rookies class, my beginners kettlebell class about how women don't get space to make noisy mistakes, like dropping mm. a weight. Like, mm. we, I love we that. Get, <laughs> we don't have space <laughs> often to just be like loud and messy. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that is what we're doing in this class. I want you to sweat. I want to hear your breath. I want you to throw around this weird asymmetrical cast iron object, literally because it will just make you more comfortable, like doing anything, like doing mm-hmm. anything out in the world that is uh, in- typically seen as like male stuff, whether it's, you know, the classic changing a tire or something like mm-hmm, that or, mm-hmm. or whatever, whatever project you have around your house. And, and I do have wonderful feedback from people being like, I helped my friend move and like lifted their mattress and it mm-hmm. was so easy. And that used to scare me so much. I thought I would get hurt. I, I mm-hmm. was always the one waiting, standing by the corner being like, I'll lift the light thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I was very inspired reading this book, just like story after story of how these women were creating these spaces for exactly that. And including my favorite, um, story of, I didn't realize that there was a moment where fitness clothing changed and the point was to show sweat. I thought that was amazing. Mm, Such an yeah. amazing anecdote, especially cause now we're in this like tech world of fitness clothing. And so now all of our fitness clothing doesn't show sweat, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I love that. Can you, um, can you tell that story a little just shortly without, Yes. As much as you want to say. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And the, in general, the, the way in which fashion influenced fitness and fitness influenced fashion and influenced fitness fashion um, was just one of my favorite kind of themes to explore. And it is, it's woven throughout the whole book. Um, But yes. So specifically uh, the story of the birth of Lycra and how Lycra became kind of the, the um, fiber of fitness is so it's just, it's fascinating. Um, The short version. uh, Yeah. I, yeah. If anyone's interested, (laughs) no, it it was, there are, there are all sorts of kind of hidden histories, histories of the everyday that are wrapped into this story. And this is, this is my favorite. Um, Basically long story short, 
Lycra was originally invented in the, it, it, it was invented by the DuPont chemical company. It took them about close to 15 years throughout the 40s and 50s. And it debuted in the early 60s um, with the goal of making a more comfortable girdle. Uh, when, when DuPont would survey women about you know their their top needs um everyone said please make a more comfortable girdle because girdles were you, you know girdles were absolutely surprising <laughs> yeah yeah shocking <laughs> um so it it was this very like eureka moment in the lab a male scientist invented the fiber that became you know that that is lycra um they started producing lycra girdles in the 60s. And at first they were a huge success. Then sort of bucking trend and bucking history, girdle sales started to fall. Uh, everyone had assumed that women, young women, teenagers, basically like baby boomer, young baby boomer women would dress like their mothers, but we were mm -hmm. entering into the period of women's liberation and um, and nothing represented you know, women's oppression more than the girdle. So girdle sales started to fall and the there, there started to be these warehouses filled with kind of unused lycra fabric so around that time and this is really heading into the 70s some very enterprising dance instructors and, and entrepreneurs began snatching up the fabric and creating dancewear they realized that it had the kind of perfect stretchy but supportive uh qualities that previous dancewear had lacked um like leotards have been around for a long time but they were really meant more for you know little girls or prepubescent sort of yeah. bodies um they weren't very supportive or comfortable and so um the woman who really who became sort of the the woman at the uh forefront of this is somebody named gilda marks who yeah as as you said i mean she she actually she she could be her own there there should be a film about her totally she sounded amazing yeah um <laughs> and so she began producing gilda marks owned an aerobic studio an early aerobic studio in la uh in the 70s and it was it was again kind of a celebrity scene partly because aerobic studios were still so uh few and far between at that point yeah. and she created the the first kind of commercial like leotards which became the second skin you know, of of a movement of a generation and i think there's a lot you know there is of course so much that we could debate about leotards and both yeah. the ways in which they liberate women and the way that they sexualize women and but for many many women who had grown up being forced to cover their bodies wear girdles wear restrictive clothing slipping into leotards and lycra leotards and lycra leggings and tights felt so incredibly freeing and like you said part of the point was for sweat to show because we were entering into an era when um exercise and for men and women, but became very uh, valued in our culture. So yeah. the irony of the same, you know, the fiber that had originally been invented to keep women constricted, then became this fiber of of freedom, is is very satisfying. Yeah, it's cinematic. It's really like it's one of those stories where you're just like you couldn't make that up. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's mm -hmm. just the yeah. image of these 
you know, roles of unused Lycra suddenly being used to free women. And, and um, it, it makes me just think of all those images you can think of Jane Fonda and any, any classic kind of seventies aerobics video with, with everyone looking so sexy and looks so fun. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, alive really just like it's, yes. it's exciting. And it's amazing to think that that was coming from this fabric meant to restrict and constrain and make mm. all these women so uncomfortable and hide their bodies. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's amazing. What a, just you could go it should be a movie you could go on and on about it (laughs) i I have to just add um so uh even while it was happening some of gilda marx's clientele uh including barbara streisand thought that her life should be a movie barbara streisand the the kind of rumor is she tried to pitch a movie about gilda gilda's life um and it ended up turning into this movie called The Main Event, which is not about Gilda at all, but which stars Barbara Streisand. And the one of the opening scenes does take place in Gilda Marx's studio. She's teaching. You can see her in action in the late 70s. You can see Barbara and and all of Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And it's it's the movie itself, I I have to say, I mean it was it was pretty widely panned. It's it's kind of tough to get through. But that opening scene is worth it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The other big through line that I saw, which I also relate to is that so many of these women had some kind of childhood trauma or, or just struggle uh, in their early life and found their way into fitness. And that niche that either they created for themselves or for the woman who really became the first woman running in any way that, um, paved the way for other women to be able to run, mm-hmm. which I still can't believe how recently it happened that women can just like join the marathon mm-hmm. or run in public um, and lifting weights and, and doing bodybuilding, all these areas where they broke into traditionally male fitness spaces. Um, they seem to really find a lot of healing and grounding by literally being connected and empowered with their own bodies and then sharing that with other people. Um, it was another place that I was like, oh, I'm part of a whole lineage. I had no idea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, can you say more about that? And and kind of were there strains in the book that you saw emerging, but, you know, you kind of had to edit down or whatever to keep your overall theme because you could mm-hmm. write a whole book that's like mm-hmm. just about that. Oh, <laughs> mm-hmm. well, yes. Um, yeah. I mean, in general, that was the biggest one of the biggest challenges was just. Um, trying to you know i i I had the fortune and the sort of challenge of having so much material um but you're right um you know i'm thinking about lottie burke the inventor of bar and her early life was she experienced kind of trauma after trauma her mother died when she was young she had to flee germany uh during you know basically nazi germany and her father ended up um dying in a concentration camp. She was Jewish. Um, and, you know, with, I'm thinking, I'm thinking with her in particular, and I'll speak to some of the others too, but I think at that time, you know, there wasn't as much, I, I haven't done a ton of research on this, but my sense is that there wasn't as much language or ways to talk about trauma and healing. And so I don't know, you know, I, I know that Lottie Burke had always, uh, she was a, a dancer before she opened her studio and she just felt most 
at home when she was moving and she was embodied, you know? Yeah. And so um, the fact that she found a career and, and um, she was willing to kind of push boundaries by encouraging women to do the same. It's just, it, you know, it's, it, it speaks to your point and it's, I, I would have loved to interview her actually her daughter who I did interview is now in her late eighties. I would love to mm-hmm. interview her about um, how she saw the two, you know, connecting. Um, I'm thinking also about, I mean, there's, that case can be made for Bonnie Pruden as well, who, like so many of the women in the book, kind of defies one description. Uh, like mm-hmm. I said, she was one of the godmothers of women's fitness. Um, for her, I mean, she she just found so much, uh, I guess, she took comfort in her body and in her physicality. And in um, sh- she was very pretty unwilling to kind of be pigeonholed into any, you know, any of the stereotypes of the, of the 1940s and 50s. And, um, and ultimately, you know, chose to, she chose to divorce her husband and never remarried. And she kind of, I think she found a very profound sense of power and safety in, um, in movement. And then I was, I just, there's Jane Fonda who, um, summarizing boiling down her story i mean with with jane fonda because she's such a public figure i really wanted to show how she she and her story and her her fitness legacy fits into the larger narrative of women's fitness and um and so it was very challenging condensing her story into just one chapter but her you know her i talk about in the book how her her mother took her own life um when jane was a little girl and she had a very lonely traumatic childhood um a very difficult strained relationship with her father the actor henry fonda and before she even went into fitness and aerobics um she took so much comfort in ballet because and in her case even though you know she was she did she was so committed in part because uh she was very focused on being thin and, and dance helped her, but she's talked about how it was, it was one of the few times when she felt this kind of tenuous connection with her body. So um, every, every woman's story of course is different, but, um, but it's, it is fascinating. And I agree. It's a, it's a thread throughout that whatever challenges or traumas some of these women faced as young women, they, they ended up finding, comfort and power in their own bodies, which in many of these eras was very uh, unusual. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting to me because I think that's a place that even though there's a lot more research and it's kind of, again, very recently, I feel like discussed and written about, it still feels like new information to a lot of the general public that fitness or movement or exercise can be a way of healing and connecting with your body, Mm. including vigorous exercise. Cause Mm. there is a lot Mm. of like, Oh, yoga is good for anxiety. And, and a lot of yoga can be very, very vigorous, but generally the idea is you're doing something slow and, and very gentle or 
you know, something else that's very slow and gentle, going for a walk, stretching, mm-hmm. but lifting weights, running, doing aerobics. I post videos all the time that the best anxiety relief is jumping around, you know, essentially mm-hmm. doing aerobics. Mm-hmm. Um, I literally mainly run just because it's better for my mental health than anything mm-hmm. else. Like mm-hmm. I, I have no bigger running goals, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I've always found uh, a lot of comfort in lifting weights. And, it, and when I, bring that to my clients, like really my clientele are people who don't feel comfortable in traditional gyms or whatever, uh, for, for all of the reasons, whether feeling self-conscious or feeling like they're not coordinated or they don't have a background in sports or movement. So they just feel overwhelmed. Mm. Um, the feedback that I get from people when we start moving together and they're like, Oh my God, I feel so much better. I thought I was going to hate this or like, like I'm seeing this bleed over into my life where I actually feel the strength that we're developing. It makes me just feel stronger as a person. Mm -hmm, I just feel mm -hmm, better, mm -hmm. you know? And I think it's amazing that that's, um, again, it's like this sort of like hidden through line to all these women's stories, Mm -hmm, maybe not even mm -hmm. fully acknowledged for some of them. Um, and it's like, yeah, I feel like even in the next 10 years there, there might be more written in more mainstream stuff, just, what about exercising not for the outside appearance or for losing weight, but just purely because you will just feel better. You'll just be a more mentally balanced, happier person. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. I hope so. It's, um, I actually, um, I recently wrote about, uh, well, trauma informed weightlifting weight, you know, for the New York times. I'm, I'm trying to remember. We might've even, we might've even yeah, we probably messaged about it. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, because basically a theme that I saw over and over again in the book and that I've experienced personally too, is that, you know, physical strength can translate into other forms of strength. Um, whether it's kind of emotional strength and resilience, endurance, um, confidence the you know the strength to kind of make necessary change in your life mm-hmm. and um i was really interested in that theme and i just um the story that i ended up working on um was so inspiring to me i i interviewed both the train you know many trainers trauma-informed trainers and people who have benefited specifically from using weightlifting as a tool to work through PTSD and other um, forms of, you know, trauma. Um, And we are, my sense is that we are, we are at the beginning of, um, it's really like, it feels like a paradigm shift to me, Mm -hmm. um, where there just in the past few years, there has started to be research. And I mean, there was a little before, but like a body of research about the connection between, um, exercise and then specifically lifting and mental health in the same way that like in the 80s we were starting to see kind of the 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 beginnings of a body of research about exercise and physical health because really there was very little there was very little it just wasn't studied yeah um people don't know realize how recent just working out basically it yeah 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 and exercise science as a field is very recent yeah. as you can imagine um but we're, we're now starting to see more research into the mental benefits mental health benefits and i think that more and more people are recognizing you know the the role that it can have in their own life and so i'm ex- you know i'm i'm cautiously optimistic about um 
where fitness will go from here in terms of being uh, a tool for mental health. Yeah. I mean, if I am even more than cautiously optimistic, if I'm radically optimistic, even just the research that's starting to come out that being fat doesn't really have any negative health benefits that it just fat yeah. in itself is not a, mm-hmm, a, a mm-hmm. negative consequence on one's health that even more can help inform these, these areas so that again, there, it's just easier to walk into a gym as a fat person or, you know, have a yes. workout class that has nothing to do with weight loss so that this just becomes more and more accessible to people because that's still a huge barrier. If you're, if you don't yes. look like the typical gym goer, you feel like, well, if I go in there, everyone's going to be staring at me and all these things. And I, I could hope, I could hope that hmm. if not in 10 years, maybe 20, it'll mm-hmm, just be possible mm-hmm. to be, you know, a fat person doing whatever you want to do, basically. In, in yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, we've been so, I just, you know, we've been so sort of indoctrinated in the idea that a fit body is essentially sort of a fat a, a fatless body, you know, yeah, a, a thin exactly. body. Um, there's a lot of work to undo those associations, but I've been very encouraged by, you know, what, what has happened over the past few years and the beginnings of greater representation and everything um, to begin to undo that, that messaging and, and, and to understand that fitness and fit bodies come in all shapes and sizes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which is basically how you finished your book, um, looking forwards and also brings me to my last question, which is, were there stories that you, I'm sure there were, (laughs) that you couldn't fit in also just because as someone in this industry, as I was reading through, I was like, she doesn't have Pilates in here because it was like you hit also. (laughs) And it just so happened because all these women were such incredible, uh, people, such leaders you also happen to hit basically every fitness fad I could think of mm. except Pilates just be, you know, cause I was like, just mm-hmm. a man. Um, but you got yoga in there despite yoga mainly being from a lot of having a lot of patriarchal background. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. that is in male, male, uh, history. Um, were there places, I mean, was there a Pilates story that you cut out? Cause it wasn't big enough. Cause he obviously had, um, plenty of famous, female teachers, but mm-hmm. none, none with as much kind of cachet as, as his own name. Mm-hmm. Um, but were there stories that, you know, that you really, that were hard to cut out to, to keep with your theme? Well, definitely Pilates. And I have written about the history of Pilates, actually, uh, for just, you know, other for publications. Initially, that chapter, uh, Stretch, which was the yoga chapter, was going to be both the rise of yoga and Pilates, because mm-hmm. even though the the origins of, of yoga and Pilates are very different and rooted in very different eras, they both sort of exploded in mainstream popularity in the West and in this country at the same time in the nineties. And so it just, it was just, it was a, a space thing and a, you know, wanting to eventually my editor, I mean, I'm very grateful for my editor and that she, she didn't have the same, um, she wasn't as, you know, close and connected right. to so, so many of these <laughs> figures. So she, she helped me cut it down, but I, there, I feel like there was 
enough for an entire sequel, you know, based on just from what we cut. Um, and I, I was for a while thinking with Pilates of trying to tell the story of, uh, Clara of Pilates, yeah. Joseph Pilates' wife, who was apparently the, was maybe more hands-on and, and a gentler figure. And so many of his um, accolades too were women. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was very sad to not be able to include Pilates. I initially had had a spinning chapter as well. And there's mm. a really, the history of the bicycle is extremely feminist and it, it you know, it allowed women a sense of free, free freedom and autonomy. It was part of the reason why pants women start wearing yep. pants, right? Bloomers and pants. Yeah. yeah. Um, even I, and I've, a few people have, um, I've gotten, you know, I've, I've been asked why they're, why CrossFit does not have a bigger role sure. in the book. It's, it's mentioned, <laughs> you know, really into, yes, <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was purely a space thing. I mean, the book as it is, it's like 300 pages. So I just, I didn't want to, I didn't want to lose readers who, um, <laughs> didn't have it in them to, to go beyond that. But, um, but I, but you know, the nice thing is I get to continue um, in my role as a journalist covering all of these modalities. And so I hope to work that history into future stories. And yeah, like absolutely. Yeah. Well, I just really appreciate your interest, especially since you, you, you don't teach fitness. Um, <laughs> and it felt really empowering for me just to read this history um, not in a dry way and not, you know, not on a Wikipedia page, but mm, really mm. beautifully told. And, uh, it's helped me really locate myself in that history. It's inspired me about kind of what legacy am I leaving behind, even though I'm, I'm no, I'm not Jane Fonda, <laughs> not, not trying to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, there's time, you never. <laughs> yeah. Well, I definitely yeah. was like, I think I should write a book. Everybody wrote a book. <laughs> Yeah, we should talk. <laughs> um, but yeah, I so appreciated this, and um, I hope I hope you do write another book. Uh, I would read the sequel to that. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> but it's out on paperback, and people can buy it. I'm sure everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah, kind of wherever you buy books. Um, it just came out in paperback, and. Um, yeah, I so appreciate all of the kind words about the book. The whole project has really been a labor of love for me. So it's really great to get to keep talking about it. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks for being on Busy Pie. Thank you so much for having me. Mm -hmm.